Today's scripture reading is from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. And the title of my message this morning is Playing Favorites. And so, have you ever been on the wrong side of favoritism? Ever been on the wrong side of someone playing favorites? So I came across this, this story recently on, on the internet. Uh, this, this individual wrote about the time they were on the wrong side of someone playing favorites. At the end of our senior party that was organized for my school, they had a raffle with a bunch of expensive prizes. Every single parent who helped organize the raffle had a child who won big, and the main organizer had her son win the $2,500 grand prize with the not-suspicious speech of, and of course, the winner of the grand prize is Charlie. I walked out with a $5 gift card to an ice cream shop that had already gone out of business. Man. Or perhaps, in a little more serious vein, this cartoon, which... We'll see if it came out. Uh, it's a little bit blurry, but perhaps this cartoon and sort of the pain that it communicates is all too real to you. And so you have a family that says they don't play favorites, but one kid has a shirt with his name on it, and the other kid has a shirt that says, the other one. Have you ever been on the wrong side, the painful side, of someone playing favorites? But the other question is, have you ever benefited from someone playing favorites? Maybe you've been on the other side, and you are the kid who won the $2,500 prize, or you're the kid who wore the shirt with your name on it. Or even more to the point, do you play favorites? Have you shown favoritism to others? So last week, we came to our section in the letter of James, where he really begins to press the connection between belief and behavior, that our belief in the gospel, our, our following Jesus as disciples, should and does transform our lives. And he begins to unpack what that is 
to look like. We are to be doers of the word, not just hearers. We are to cultivate humility, which leads to us being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. Our religious practice leads us to controlling our tongue and caring for the most weak and vulnerable individuals in our community. Our our practice of discipleship keeps us from being corrupted by the influence of the world, belief and behavior interconnected. And here in chapter 2, James is going to do the same thing. He's going to continue on with this theme. In verse 1, he writes, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, faith changes our behavior. It changes the way we relate to others. It changes the way we relate to each other in, in many ways, but what's in focus here is the topic of favoritism. And so what James is going to put before us is this main idea, that rather than playing favorites, faith forsakes favoritism. Faith forsakes favoritism. For for as we're going to see, favoritism is both damaging and destructive. It's ruinous in relationships in a community. Faith forsakes favoritism also because disciples of Jesus are called to something far greater than selfish favoritism. And so... I want us to follow James here this morning. I want us to follow his lead. And my hope is that by, through God's word and through his spirit, that he does a work on us individually and as a community. And so let's walk through this passage together as a church. And so why is James so adamant that faith forsakes favoritism? Why is he, why is he so strong here? Well, first, favoritism, as James is going to point out, is born of evil judgment, Evil judgment, as he writes in verses two through four. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So, so let's, let's just lay some groundwork here. First of all, judgment in and of itself is not wrong. In fact, as Christians, we are called to judge. Now, you know that famous passage that people like to throw out, judge not, okay? The context of that is if you finish the statement, the idea is be careful how you judge because the way you judge someone, you will be held to that same judgment. Jesus goes on to say, when you judge, judge righteously. We are called to make judgments about what is good and what is evil, So as Christians, we are called to discern and to judge. So judgment in and of itself is not wrong. What James is going after here is how we judge. What is the basis for that judgment? And also, listen, not all favoritism is wrong. Listen, if you were to find yourself trapped in a burning building with my wife, and I was the only one that could come rescue you, and I was running in, I hope you know Jesus because you're going to meet him. I'm going after my wife. If it's down to you and her, I'm saving her. I'm going to show her favoritism. Why? Because she's my wife. I have given a vow, a promise that I give my all to her, my very life to her. I am in covenantal commitment with her. There is a loyalty and an obligation that I have to her. And from that loyalty and that obligation... I show favoritism to her in a manner of speaking. I show a higher level of commitment. Now, there's limits to that. 
I'm not going to rig a raffle, and so she wins a $2,500 grand prize. Sorry, babe. Um, But we understand there are certain relationships because of the level of commitments and the obligation we have, whether that be your spouse or your kids or other people, that there is a type of favoritism you show, and that is good. That That is not a bad thing. What James is addressing, though, he is addressing a favoritism born of evil judgment. Judgment not based on good things like commitment and loyalty and love, but based on things such as who has more money? Who dresses better? Who has more standing and position in the community? These are evil distinctions because they're not distinctions made from goodness and love and service and sacrifice, but the kinds of things that value status and wealth the things that value a person based on how much standing and position they have. Now, most scholars believe that the the tension that sort of James is addressing in the churches that he's writing to was that these churches were facing, and and really the whole area was facing a measure of uh, hardship and droughts, and so there was an economic downturn. And, And so what these Christians would do is when someone wealthy would come into the church, it was like, whoa, someone with money? someone with social standing that could make us look good and position us better in the community. So we better roll out the red carpet for them. We better give them the best seat in the house because we want them to stay. We want them to find favor on us as a church community because we can benefit if they stick around. We can benefit financially and socially. And so think about this, First City. Let's say two families walk into a Sunday morning gathering One family is well-dressed, clean-cut. Kids are smiling and well-behaved. They look like the model of that upper-middle-class, successful, beautiful family that you would see on Instagram. Then another family walks in, aren't dressed as nicely. It's obvious they, they tried to find something a little bit nicer for a Sunday morning, but you can see their clothes still look a little disheveled, a little worn out, don't quite fit right. The kids are a bit energetic. Which one are you going to gravitate toward more? Now, we might not be as blatant as like, hey, let's move out a whole front row special seat for the nice family and kind of move the other family in the back. We might not be that blatant about it. But who do we gravitate towards? Who do we in our mind go, I hope this family sticks around versus this family? But like, do we, do we begin to make these judgments in our mind based on how we see people and our perceived perception of the value they could bring to this community and this church and start to go, well, I hope they stay. And these messy people over here, well, you know, if they stick around, that, that's fine. But if they, you know, if they sort of just slink off and disappear, no sweat off our back. Do, do we start to play favorites in our mind and our heart when we think that there, is a, there are people that we think will benefit us, benefit us individually, benefit us as a community. It can be so easy, friends, it can be so easy to begin to show favoritism to people that we think we can benefit from. Well, we believe that this relationship will get us something, something good, whether it be hey, associating with this really nice, clean-cut, wealthy, educated family and just sort of the social status that could bring. Or maybe we think, hey, 
these people seem really nice and I, feel, I like how I feel when I'm around them and so they make me feel good about myself and so there's sort of this emotional thing that we take from them. Whatever it may be, we start to make these judgments based on what people can give us. And friends, if we're doing that, that's favoritism. Those are evil judgments. Those are evil distinctions because we're seeing people through appearance and wealth and education and status and put togetherness and that sense of what we can get from them. And then we start playing it at this at the church level where it's like, hey, when we want people to think of First City Church, what type of people do we want to be there? When people think, oh, that type of person goes to First City Church, who do we want them to imagine? Do we want them to imagine the nice, put-together, upper-middle-class family that has it all together and everybody's behavior just seems great and everybody's successful and they live in the nice big house? Or the messy church, the messy people? Are we afraid to be identified and associate with certain types of people? Friends, when favoritism sets in, when favoritism begins to take root, when we find our hearts treating people this way, here's what this is. This is using people. This isn't love. This isn't community. This isn't family. This is using others. And look, do we not see the damage this does? Have we not been hurt enough in some ways by the ways we've been hurt by favoritism? Do we not see how this is wrecking and ruining our society? Look how tribal we are. And you better believe that's, that is favoritism in many different forms. There is such a propensity in our society and in our hearts, our sinful hearts, to gravitate towards those things that we can benefit from and use, the people that we can use. And look, we can, we can flip this around too. Maybe you decide somebody's too wealthy or too educated or too put together, and you're like, well, I can't have a relationship with them. I can't benefit myself from them. I'm, I'm kind of over here in the class people like to put in the corner. And so you do the same thing. You just flip it around. Like it cuts both ways. But here, if, if we're just talking about First City Church, here's what we need to be honest about, friends. Like for the most part, the social class level here at First City is pretty flat. Like some of you are wealthier than others. Some of you are maybe in a, a higher social class than others. But for the most part, like I look around this room and everyone is dressed relatively the same. There's nobody that's sticking out with extra fine, nice clothes. No one's in here wearing a $1,000 suit as far as I'm aware. If you are, awesome. Please let me feel that material after the service. But most of us are dressed pretty casually at the same sort of socioeconomic level. And so it's not gonna look as distinct as what James is describing here, but you better believe we still can do this. We can still find ways where we gravitate towards certain people and try to use them. Or we have in our hearts, we sort of carry these favoritist sort of ideas about who we want this church to, to what do we want this church to look like. And friends, when we fall into this, we're falling into evil judgments. We're sizing people up to see what we can get from them. We're showing favoritism. And friends, such, for our faith forsakes such favoritism. Our faith forsakes such favoritism. Well, and James then goes on to, to highlight, man, there's an irony behind favoritism. In verses five through seven, he writes this, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet yeah, you have dishonored the poor. 
Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Is it not true, James is asking, that the ones you dishonor and despise as having no benefit and value, are they not the ones that God has chosen to make rich in his kingdom? The ones that the world sees as poor and destitute with no power, no standing, no status, are they not the ones who are going to richly reign in God's kingdom? James is highlighting an irony, and he's pointing out this, that when you show favoritism, you get things exactly backwards. You end up dishonoring the ones who are honorable, and you end up honoring the ones who are dishonorable. So so is James saying that the poor are uniquely righteous, or that salvation only comes to those who are poor, or that we have to become financially poor in order to experience salvation? No, he's not saying those things. Scripture shows us that there are righteous poor and unrighteous poor. The poor are not uniquely righteous. Salvation only comes through faith in Christ, and salvation comes to all. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It's whether or not you have put your faith in Christ and follow him. But what James is drawing on, and he did this, remember, back in chapter 1, verse 9, He's drawing on this persistent theme found in Scripture where God is near the lowly and the destitute. He he exalts and lifts up those who are lowly and humble, and he casts down the proud. And, and, And while the humble and the lowly are not always associated with the poor, the financially poor, most often in Scripture than not, they are. Or they're at least associated with someone who is in extreme difficulty, they're in extreme hardship that has brought them low, there's something that's really pressing down on them and making their life difficult. And why does Scripture do this? Well, Scripture draws this close association with the social condition of poverty and the lowliness of our spiritual condition. The spiritually Humble are associated with the socially lowly because the socially lowly and the socially poor are aware of their need. That they are aware that they are destitute, that they have no power in and of themselves to rescue themselves or pull themselves up out of their situation. And what does that do? It points us to the gospel. It shows us our spiritual poverty and our spiritual need. It shows us that we have no self-sufficiency in and of ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot fix what is broken in us in our world. And so the socially low, the socially poor, the fact that they're in tune with their need and they cry out to God, that's an instruction to you and I who have more. To show, don't put your trust in your wealth. Don't put your trust in your circumstances. Don't put your trust in your power and ability. Rather, you are in need, absolute need. So when we recognize that it is the poor, it is the humble that God saves and God lifts up, the poor become an instruction to us. And as they become an instruction to us, we move closer to them. We don't despise them. Because we see in their poverty, our poverty. And we recognize God is near those who are poor, not far away. And where do we want to be? Where God is. Who do we want to love? Who do we want to care for? The ones God loves, the ones God's care for. And so James is highlighting that when we stiff arm and dishonor the poor, we are distorting the gospel. We're losing sight of the gospel. We're losing sight of our need our spiritual poverty, the the need for humility and lowliness. We're despising the very things God calls us to embrace. Not only that, 
The other irony James points out is that the rich, the ones these Christians were trying to cozy up to, these were the ones who were opposing their faith, mocking them, blaspheming God. Now, this doesn't mean that all wealthy people are mockers and blasphemers and oppressors. It's not what James is saying. However, think about this. Who are the people pulling the levers of culture and government that oppress and oppose our faith? It ain't poor people. Like, who is in government? It ain't poor people. When was the last time we had a president that went to a state school who made like $50,000 a year before he became president? Doesn't happen. The people in power are wealthy. James is just highlighting a fact of society. Who most opposes the faith, the Christian faith? Those who are wealthy and in positions of power. Not all, but that is a fact and a reality. And James is like, you want to cozy up with the people who mock you. You want to cozy up with the people who oppose you. You want to cozy up with the people whose values distort the gospel and pull you away from Christ. What are you doing? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Why are you giving them the best seat in the house? Are they not the ones that blaspheme the name of God? Why do you want to be associated with them? James is highlighting an irony here. Favoritism distorts the gospel. Favoritism causes us to compromise our belief. Favoritism causes us to cozy up to those who hate our God, hate our gospel. Our faith forsakes such favoritism. Our faith forsakes distorting the gospel. Our faith forsakes compromise. James keeps going. (laughs) Evil judgments, distorting the gospel, compromising with those who hate our faith. James is not done. He keeps turning the screw. He writes in verses 8 through 11, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you're a lawbreaker. So here's, here's all that James is saying here. He, he is making a point sort of predicated on this reality about how the law is understood. The Old Testament law is understood. And we're going to see this in the fall when we jump back into Exodus. We're going to be going through the Ten Commandments, the the section in Exodus that gets into the law of God. But there is an essentially a breakdown into two categories of the law. And we see Jesus talk about this regularly. But the first and greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second greatest commandment was like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So every law, every regulation in the Old Testament could be fit into one of these two categories, love God or love neighbor. And these two things were inseparably connected. You can't do one without the other. And so what James is highlighting here is that for you to love, that is the highest calling, to love God and love neighbor. And he's focusing on loving neighbor. That is what we are called to do in our relationships with people. But when we show favoritism, here's the the crux of the matter. Favoritism is not love. Favoritism violates the second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he he really just hits it right at the heart. But then he goes at our cherry picking. He says, look, you may think you're nailing it over here, 
And so in that way, you sort of justify your favoritism over here. But he says, hey, if you break one part of this, you break the whole thing. Love is not some sort of thing you compartmentalize and say, well, I'm, I'm loving over here, but I'm not loving over here. No, if you're not loving over here, you're not loving. And so James is highlighting, like, if you break one part, you break it all. You can't go, well, you know what? I don't commit adultery, but I murder. You're a lawbreaker. Well, I, I don't lie, but, you know, I show favoritism. Well, you're a lawbreaker. I don't blaspheme God. I, I come on Sundays and I, I worship the Lord. I sing songs. I read my Bible. I, I study scripture. I do all, the, 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 all the, the things that I'm supposed to do as a Christian, but I show favoritism. Well, you're a lawbreaker. James does not let us off the hook. He, he does not let us cherry pick the matter. If we fail in one aspect, we are failing to love and favoritism transgresses the law. Favoritism is not love. Faith forsakes favoritism so that we would be fully faithful to God's word, so that we would keep this great commandment to love others. We, we forsake favoritism because we believe so much that loving others is our call in life, that we believe that this is right and this is good, and that we would turn from anything that would keep us from loving. And that, friends, is ultimately where our faith leads. When we forsake favoritism, when we are turning from evil judgments, when we are turning from distorting the gospel, we're turning from compromising, what we are turning towards is love and mercy. And that's where James leads us to say we're not just turning away from this, we are turning towards something. As James writes in verse 12, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Hey, look, rather than standing in evil judgment over other people and deciding whether they're worthy or not, we as followers of Jesus recognize we stand under a higher authority. We stand under the perfect law of freedom. God's word, God's law, God's standard. We stand and submit ourselves to that and we live our lives as those who recognize that. Hey, I don't get to make this up on my own. I don't determine what is right and wrong. I don't base my judgments on me. No, I follow something greater, something better. And at the heart of that law of freedom, as James told us, is love. Like, look, people like to rag on the Old Testament. They like to rag, and there are pastors, there are famous pastors. Sorry, not going to name drop, but I'm just going to tell you, there are famous pastors that will rag on the Old Testament. And you know why I just want to, like, throw things at the, my phone or whatever screen I'm looking at when I see them do that? Because what is the heart of the Old Testament? The glory of God and the call to love like, like, like underneath all of that regulation, and yeah, there are certain things that it's kind of like, what, I don't understand that law. Okay, yeah, different time, different place. But underneath all of that is not a God with this heavy-handed, I'm gonna strike you down, and, and this sort of like angry God throwing fireballs from, from heaven at us. No, it's a God of glory who calls us to love other people. And when people rag on the Old Testament, it's like, hey, you're undercutting a call to love. And so First City Church, listen, all that God calls us to do, it's not to burden us with legalism. It's to call us to love. Love him and love others. And what would you rather give yourself to? A call to love that sacrifices and serves and doesn't show favoritism or our culture that says, yeah, if you're wealthy, if you're powerful, here's your platform. If you can garner enough sympathy because of how much you've been oppressed, here's a platform. 
if we can create enough animosity against each other, here's a platform. Like the contrast maybe has never been more stark in our culture between the call to love and lay all that stuff down to a call to just grab your power, your position, your status, your standing. James is calling us to something greater. We live under a greater word. We live under a greater judgment, the law of freedom. And so church, imagine, imagine a church that turned away from favoritism, turned away from using one another, turned away from status-seeking and chasing after whatever position I can get in the church, thinking that because if I have enough money or if I have enough sort of standing or if I'm put together enough or if my family looks good enough, then, hey, that's going to make us something. What if we put all of that aside and just loved one another? What if we saw both of those families walking in and everybody rushed to greet them the same and said, hey, we, we want to know you. We want to welcome you. We, we, we would be more than happy to love you for you. doesn't matter if you're put together and you're mature or if you are a hot, stinking mess. We love you. Imagine what that would do to a church culture if we spoke and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom, as if we gave ourselves to this call to love others. How much better the royal law than the law of our culture? And along with that, there is also a call here to be people of mercy. Like James, as James writes in verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen, friends, we're all in need of mercy. Like when we stand under that law of freedom, when we stand under its judgment, here is what we find. We're guilty. We have all broken it. We have all shown favoritism. We have all not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are guilty of breaking God's law. We're spiritually poor and destitute. We're unable to fix it. We're unable to redeem ourselves. We are helpless. We are in a wreck and a mess of our own making. But here's the good news of the gospel for you and I. That in love, God the Father sent Jesus. And in love, Jesus came. And what did Jesus do? He showed incredible mercy. He showed mercy by laying down his life to take the judgment you and I deserve, to die in our place so that we could be forgiven and set free. The mercy of God has been poured out on us through Jesus Christ. We are a people who have received infinite mercy. And because we have received infinite mercy, we are now called not to judge and show favoritism, but to show mercy, to love people in their mess, to enter into that brokenness with the gospel and the love and grace of God and meet them where they are. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Friends, this statement, and mercy triumphs over judgment. That is true for you and I if we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, what do we experience? Not God's judgment, but God's mercy. God's mercy rescued us and saved us. But then also, listen, what is going to lift people up? Judgment or mercy? Like, is our evil judgment and our playing favorites, is that going to lift people up and help them grow and thrive, or is mercy? Is, is our evil judgments and our favoritism going to see this community love one another and thrive and be unified, or is mercy? Like mercy triumphs over judgment every single time because mercy is actually what transforms people. Mercy is actually what changes things. Not judgments, not favoritism. Faith forsakes favoritism because mercy is greater. Friends, we are called. We are called to be those who show mercy. We are called to be those 
who celebrate mercy because mercy trials, triumphs over judgment. Look, if you're given to judgment, if you're given to favoritism, if you're running around chasing that and thinking you need that, listen, you're not going to get what you're looking for. You're not going to get what you're looking for. What's going to happen? It's going to hollow out your soul. It's going to make you spiritually immature at best, and it's going to make you angry and bitter and disappointed at worst. Promise. Promise. And if you don't believe me, again, look at our culture. Do you see a culture of love and of mercy and of grace and of people thriving and growing? Spiritual health, emotional health, relational health. Do you see any of that happening? No. No. Why? Because in our culture, judgment triumphs over mercy. Evil judgment triumphs over mercy. We're called to something different, something better, something greater. And that happens through the power of Christ and Christ alone. It happens as we experience forgiveness and freedom through Jesus Christ. We can't do this on our own. It only happens as we humble ourselves, receiving the mercy of God and the love of God and being so transformed, so captivated by that love and mercy that we now go and we live that and we declare that and we share that with other people. That's what James is calling us here. That, that's, that's his point here. Yeah, he's coming hard at favoritism because he knows the damage and the destruction, but even more than that, he's calling us to something beautiful. God's word is calling us to something beautiful. And so church, our faith forsakes favoritism. Let us be a church community that forsakes favoritism. Whenever we feel it welling up in our hearts, whenever we sort of, we can see ourselves being tempted to gravitate to certain people because we believe we can get something from them, let's put that to death. Let's die to that and let's love people just for who they are. Not because we get something in return, but because they're a brother or sister, because they're someone made in the image of God, and we love them because we have been loved. We show them mercy because we have been shown mercy, and we want to see them know Christ and his love and mercy. Amen? Let's pray.